Welcome to the Stanley Street Social Podcast presented by the TAC. The road belongs to us all. A very important message to make sure, especially as we head back out on the road after our lockdowns are easing here in Australia. Make sure you do your bit, be respectful of all road users and make sure you get to your destination in a safe manner. Today on the podcast, we've got Harry Sweeney. He's been on the pod a couple of times, notably throughout the Tour de France when he really burst onto the scene after Caleb Ewan pulled out early, but he was awfully present in the race after that. We catch up just after he used Paris-Roubaix, the wet and wild Paris-Roubaix, which we talk about at the start, and then go into his Neopro year, how he's managed it, but also how, how he's managed it in such a such a good way. He's come out of this year with a super base. He's set up, he's ready to go, and he's got some really interesting thoughts on how he went about settling himself into uh, Europe and into the pro scene. A big thank you to our apparel partner friends at MAP. If you do need some new kit, especially some slightly different kit, something that's a little bit different, their Alt Row collection is now live on their website. Some awesome, like, cool, casual kit that's different to your traditional straight-up-and-down cycling kit, uh, which combines MAP design with all their performance uh, apparel, and I am looking forward to getting my hands on some soon. Before we get started in this episode, I'd just like to mention a new podcast that I've been working on with the National Centre for Sports Cardiology. You may recall, if you're a long-time listener of the pod, an episode we did with Andre Lagersh. He's one of the members of the National Centre for Sports Cardiology, and they've just released their third episode with Olympian Georgia Baker on top of their second episode with Matt Heyman, the Paris Bay winner, uh, and the, f- the first episode with their founding groups. It's all about sports cardiology uh, and working with the work that they do with athletes uh, to prevent, monitor, and support them through their cardiology needs. If you want to check that out, I will put a link to that in this episode notes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks to our podcast partners, MAP and the TAC, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Harry. Welcome to the Stanley Street Social Podcast, Harry Sweeney. It's good to have you back on the show. How's your, uh, how's your offie going? Pretty good, actually. Um, about a week into it now. Uh, I've just been hanging around Nice. It started a bit earlier than originally planned. I got really sick after Ubay, actually. I uh, came down with a pretty nasty cold. So I didn't race parry tours in the end um, and just called it a year, which was pretty nice to finish on Roubaix. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have three more weeks off now and then get back into it. Yeah, that's nice. That's nice. Surprise, surprise, you got sick after Roubaix. Yeah, well, I think I actually got off uh, the the best of a lot of people. I have a mate here that raced and he got like a proper bacterial infection and had to go see a doctor of real serious on the antibiotics for a week. So I think a cold's probably the best I could have had. Is it the hardest event you've ever done? Yeah, hands down. Like by a long way? Um, In terms of... Uh, power and stuff it's quite similar like on par with what I would have done in the past but the thing that made it difficult was just the mental focus it was I think a lot of I was expecting a little bit that maybe a break would go or maybe it would start racing and then it just started racing straight away and that was the velodrome like it wasn't it didn't ease up at all and because we had such a big move yeah I didn't actually realize that it was a split and it just like suddenly you're in a 30-man front group and like everyone's just riding full full gas. Um, so, yeah, it, I think a lot of it was a mental focus. Like 
usually in the break it settles down a bit after like an hour or so, like when you've established your lead. But after an hour of being in the break, you hit the first cobble sector and it's just chaos for the rest of the day. So there was never really a lull. And I think like you could see in everyone's faces by the end, they were just completely like trashed, I guess. Yeah. 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 We, we nervous in the running, especially seeing the women's race on the Saturday as predicted to be wet brackets worse. Yeah, we were, well, I knew it was going to be a wet Roubaix pretty much from the day after worlds. Um, and that was a bit hard to wrap my head around. Um, and then I saw the women's race and it was like incredible just seeing some of them surfing like Voss um, yeah. going around and we're all on the bus just like absolutely like just gripped by the race. Um, you were like so, squirming. Yeah. Like you were sit, like, sitting there like, oh, yeah. Uh. You know what that feeling's like when you're sliding around on the cobbles and to some degree you have control, but when you're watching someone else do it, you just like at any point they're just going to drop like a sack on these cobbles. So it makes it real hard to watch, I think. But um, I knew, yeah, I, I sort of was a bit nervous. And then on the start line was like no race I've ever done before. Like, the, you know, any other race, there's guys talking on the start line, like seeing what they're up to, catching up. Like even at the start of the tour, everyone's like having banter like they're at a Sunday ride the first stage of the tour and then we're on the start line of Roubaix and everyone's silent like they're at a funeral and you look <laughs> around the sunnies on you can see their eyes like they're just like shaking almost so it was really intimidating not because I knew what the race was but just because everyone else was nervous because everyone else was nervous so yeah it was really uh highly anticipated by the time we hit the cobbles I guess yeah. It, did you did you get a chance to ride on the cobbles in the condition that they were? No. Um, I've ridden the cobbles a fair bit in the wet, like when I was uh, under 19 in Belgium, but it's been quite a while since I've ridden cobbles in the wet like that. And especially as you get closer to Roubaix, they're just shocking. Like it's, yeah. it's not really even – it's like if you're not racing for the win, you're just making it to Roubaix and – Without that adrenaline anymore, it's like really just like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Like I've ridden Belgian cobbles before, but and and when they were like semi wet, but that that was like next level wet. It wasn't just that they were super wet. It looked like there was like a pretty much just mud just everywhere. Yeah, and that was actually what made it quite difficult is and even made the race split immediately, is because usually when it's dry. You can ride the bad lines like where the wheels of the car go, so on either side. But because it was wet, you could only ride in the very middle, which meant there was only space for one rider every time you hit the cobbled sector, unless you wanted to ride in the sides where the wheels were. But the problem with that is it was so rained out that you can't see where the holes were. So if you're riding on the side, you're just taking a risk that you're going to go straight into a hole and it'll be like your day done. Yeah, and as Gianni showed towards the end there it's not even safe riding in the middle solo along the cobbles yeah it's um i think it's something that you have to have a feel for like you either have a feel for it or you don't and i think you can see in the recon there was a lot of guys or a few teams that changed their rosters the day after recon because they hit like one wet sector on the cobbles and they just decked it yeah um yeah it's it was 
in one way, it sort of made the cobbles safer and it made the rest of the race more dangerous, I think, because there's normally a fight, but the fight this time was just incredible. Like we were hitting cobble sectors and we're in a breakaway and you'd think like, oh, I'm in a break, it's pretty safe. And you'd be like rolling through and guys would stop rolling like a kilometre from the cobble sector just so they can whack you right before it and hit the front in front of you. It's just, yeah, it's really, um, uh, it's just real different racing. Yeah, I don't know if you would have seen it, but with like talking about like squirming, watching run-ins to sections in the women's race on Saturday, in the, the, the first sector that they were coming into, it was, well, it wasn't even the first sector they were coming into. It was like 10Ks out from the first sector in the main yeah. bunch. It looked horrible. Like everyone yeah. was trying to be at the front. It was filthy wet. It, it, it looked disgusting. And it was only like a matter of time before people started hitting the deck. Yeah. Um, and the other huge issue that I never thought of as well is most of the cobble sectors are straight and you're riding in the wheel focusing on not like not crashing basically the whole day. And if the person in front drops the wheel, you don't know until you come around a corner or get off the cobble sector because you can't follow a different line from them and you're spending the whole time blinking the mud out of your eyes. So there was a few times actually in the break where I didn't get the position I wanted into the cobble sector and I was stuck behind someone and they might have just dropped. But you get to the end of the cobble sector and you're 500 metres off the back of the front of the bunch because you didn't know that there was a, a gap that was opening. So there was a lot of times during the day where that happened and I sort of had to make a big effort to get back and it really makes you realise how huge of a difference it is to be the first five wheels versus the last five wheels. So you guys were like racing into each sector because like you made yeah. you made the breakaway, but it was like a, it was a, like you said at the start, it was almost like a split. It was a massive group. Yeah, I think what initially happened is there was like five of us maybe that we attacked and then it was in the gutter, like trying to make it real hard for everyone. And then we all five of us or something sat up and then everyone started screaming from the back, like we've got a group go. And I think it just went into the gutter behind us and the group just split. Someone drops a wheel and that was it. Um, but even from then, it was like guys were trying to screw you over from the very beginning. And then guys missing turns, people sitting on, people crashing, like Kung crashed out on one of the first roundabouts of the day, um, I guess on some oil. Um, yeah. And then it was just racing into every corner, like Moscon putting your elbows into ribs into like, the first cobble sector, the second cobble sector. Yeah, I don't think he was anyone's favourite rider that day, I'll put it that way. Well, are you going head-to-head -head with him? Yeah, like you just come into a cobble sector and you're riding like fifth wheel or something, you're like, oh, I'm pretty safe here. And Moscon will come like up around the, the, um, the bank of the – and then like elbow into the side of you and then come through and oh. – Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, but also like one, one of the hardest, maybe maybe the hardest breakaway in the world to make, Rubé breakaway, and then to have I think hard to make if you don't know like how it's going to happen or I honestly don't really know how it happened because I just happened to be there like I was on the front foot and you know what it's like with echelons like the the echelons formed and you don't know that there's echelons behind you because it's not hard to make it but you have to be there. Yeah. Yeah. And then did you feel comfortable? Like we, it, it looked good. Like you looked like you were comfortable in the move uh, because 
as the race went on, like Kung crashed out, but there was people getting hooped for different reasons, like for pretty much the entire race. Well, it was for the entire race because we ended up with Gianni Solo off the front. That was from the breakaway. Yeah, well, I felt really quite good early on, but I knew it was going to be a bit of a stretch because I come into Worlds, it was uh, like, I think I'd say borderline, like done a little bit too much in hindsight, but I knew that I sort of needed to do that because it had only been four, four and a half weeks since I broke my collarbone. So I sort of had to like take the risk of that. So after Worlds, I took three days off and really freshened up and then coming into Roubaix, I felt great. And then probably for four hours at least, I felt really good. Uh, and yeah, I was just, it was perfect situation for me. I had a teammate up the road from the breakaway for so much of the race, so I didn't have to do anything. Um, and yeah, I think it sort of just, I got a little bit zapped and then, uh, yeah, I, I just ran out of legs to be honest in the end, which is sort of a bit of a bitter pill to swallow when you see what, how it forms. Like I had two opportunities to be at the front of the race initially when I was in the front. And then when I got dropped from the front and Vanderpol came past and then I got dropped from that move as well. So that sucked because like when I first finished, I was like, oh, that was a good first Roubaix. But then like watching it back again, I'm like, that could have been something a lot more special. Yeah. Yeah. And like I'm, I remember watching that cobbled sector where Vanderpol came came past. And you were like, you were there. You were on the, like, you were there. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, the first one, he came past and he just drilled it out of the corner. Um, or sorry, out of the, the cobble sector. Um, and I got shelled there, but I made it back on like just. And then the next cobble sector, I didn't really feel, like see where the start of it was because I was just like head down, like following a week. And he just suddenly dived into this sector. And because I initially just went for my breaks, but they were full of dirt, so I wasn't going anywhere. And I straight lined the corner a bit. And then hit the sector and I was already five metres off the back and then I sort of just never made it back on the wheel. But at that point, honestly, even if I followed the wheel, I was gone after that anyway. I think once I got dropped, like once I started running out of energy, I sort of struggled to um, to get in the fuel that I needed to to keep going really. Yeah, 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 yeah. Was, it, was he um, above everyone else in terms of the way he was managing the cobbles? I wouldn't say so, no. I think it was a lot of legs and maybe on the TV, sometimes I think it looks like someone could be really poor at the cobbles, but like if you don't have the legs to go fast, you're going to look terrible on the cobbles. <laughs> if you're doing most of the sectors, you don't ride them as hard as in recon, but most of the sectors you're still riding at 450 to 500. So if you can do that, it doesn't matter. Like you're just going to glide across the top. But if you're getting like real bogged down at the end of every sector, it's just, you're going to look terrible riding them no matter what. But in terms of skill, I don't think he, like I'm sure he has far more skill than anyone that was in that little move, but I don't think he had to show it because there, there was no real need. Like you can just ride at a comfortable pace, not really take any risks and you're going to get back to the front anyway. Yeah. So you felt comfortable following Van der Poel into those sections because that just seems like the scariest thought ever, that guy. Yeah, I, I think I did. Um, I felt uncomfortable towards the end when I, like, not in skill terms, but in just terms of that I had no legs left and 
every time. It's, it's really enjoyable almost in the cobble sectors when you're feeling good and you can follow anything. But when you can't, it's probably one of the worst feelings you can have in racing, I think. Yeah. And then you get that like bogged down, like, like you said, if you're not, if you're not on top of the gear and you're also not racing for the win, like yeah. hard, hard out there. Yeah. Especially when you're going backwards, it's, it's different. Maybe if you're coming to the front and you're sort of dying a bit, but when you started at the front and you're coming backwards and the other thing is I didn't really know the rest of the roads and my Garmin screen was covered in mud. So I'm sort of just like real buckled and didn't know how long finished. didn't know like was happening the car was way back and like i heard vanderpoel was coming and i was like oh, i better freshen up a little bit here and i think i had like a second spurt for a bit but for the most part i knew that there was still a long way to go and you can't really hold on on 50k of cobbles left <laughs> yeah 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 was it hard managing the mud i uh, yeah, I think in the beginning, I the first cobble sector, I threw my glasses away just straight away because I didn't want to use water to squirt my lenses every five seconds because unless you're on the front, you're getting mud in your face. So I threw them away. And then probably for at least the next 100 kilometers, it was fine just blinking. But then I'm not on TV, but the sun came out a little bit and it dried up. And all the wet mud I had under my eyes had like solidified so I couldn't blink my eyes anymore. And that like it was so crusty that I just couldn't blink my eyes quick enough. So I can see like mud coming to my eyes, but I can't blink. So it's just hitting my eyes. So you have like the last 50K was just absolutely horrific. Yeah. And we're like, is it all through your mouth and like as well? Like you're just tasting dirt. Um, not so much in my mouth, actually, uh, in my ears for sure. Like I was getting dirt out of my ears for at least another week. Uh, but yeah, it was just the eyes were the worst part. Maybe it was in my mouth as well, but I was pretty, uh, pretty cooked at that point. So it was a team must have been pretty happy though with one, their result. And also two, you, you two young guys going at, going at the race, being in the move. Um, having Lotto Sudal as, as present as they were in the race? I think so, yeah, because the team's taken a lot of criticism in the last few years about sort of rejuvenating in with younger riders um, with the goal of getting them while they're young and developing them into what they want. And I think a lot of that is because they're being compared to teams like UAE that can buy any talent they want in the world and they're all going to perform in any different type of race because they're climbers or GC riders or time trialists. And I think a lot of the point with Lotto is they don't get a lot of time to showcase what they have done with the development of the riders because we're not necessarily the best climbers in the world, but in Florian's case, it'd be one of the best classic riders in the world that's coming through now. Yeah. Yeah. Like what, what's going on? On the inside, like what what's causing in terms of like that development? It seems like it's a good environment for both you, like your your years being out of control, um, but also starting to see these other guys come through. Uh, I think it's the the internal is not what's causing the issue. I think it's the media from the outside. Um, it's always a lot of negative stuff about uh, older guys leaving or younger guys coming in, but. There's, I think you're always going to cop that until you start seeing guys succeed and 
obviously there's no one on Twitter saying that Lotto's made wrong choices when Florian's second in Roubaix. So, yeah, yeah. I think it's those things that you're going to always just get a uh, bad rap about, really. Yeah, yeah. Is it cool being in a Belgian team in a sport like that's so big in their country, like playing AFL and being from Melbourne or NRL and being from Queensland? I think so, yeah. There's You see a lot of fans, particularly around those areas. Um, and even when I got dropped from the move and I Phil came past me actually and I rode with Phil and three other guys for about 20K, like just doing turns with Phil just because it's like it's iconic with Phil in his is the reigning champ of Roubaix and it's a bit of an honor so that was unreal like you're riding past huge crowds and everyone's cheering your name like Phil's name Lotto it's yeah it's really special a quick message from our friends at the Peaks Challenge if you Enter the code Stanley Street Social at checkout. You'll get yourself 5% off entry before the 28th of November. We're releasing this part at the start, so you've got to the almost the end of November to get yourself 5% off. It's a massive challenge, but what a challenge to set yourself as you come out the back end of COVID lockdowns. You can get a bit further out on the roads. 235Ks is the event, 4,000 metres of climbing in the beautiful Victorian Alps. If you want more information, uh, head to peakschallenge.com.au and if you want a discount, 5% off, Stanley Street Social spelled out in full will get you 5% off the entry fee. On to your year as a whole. It's been unbelievable. Like for, from an Australian spectator, did did I just underestimate you or like what, what did you expect this kind of success as a um as a neo pro on Lotto, um, I think a lot of it, to be honest, was I'm not sure I had that much faith in myself beforehand when I turned pro in the first place. Like I thought maybe a lot of my results before were down to flukes or something. But I think uh, I I knew that I sort of had the level to be there, but I knew that it was going to be hard to get there. And I think with the belief that Lotto had in me, sort of really spurred me on there in a lot of ways but yeah my the year that I've had as a neo pro has been unreal and like to get opportunities to go to races that I have is another thing entirely from what you're capable of so a lot of it's down to the team actually having the faith to put me in those races but yeah it's I think yeah I don't know I guess in my under 23s I sort of lost uh, a, a fair bit of belief just like with injury and accidents and just not going well over the years, especially in the first two years when I was in Mitchelton. And then it was more in the last two, like few years of my under-23s to sort of get some faith back into who I was as a rider. Yeah. Yeah. Like was there anything that, that clicked? Was there anything that, I don't know, changed that or like that kind of helped that progression? Um, I think definitely fueling properly for training would be one. Uh, Do you get put up in like the trying to get lean all the time? Big, yeah, big time in the under 23 program because there's no space for a rider like me in that program. Well, at least that was my vision. Like you in that program, you're only good to them if you're one of the best up-and-coming under-23 climbers in the world, GC riders or time trialists. And if you're anything apart from that, you're working into the bottom 
of the Poggio or whatever climb you're doing and then that's your day done. So you never sort of come into a race and you're like, this is my day today, the team's going to work for me. And I think that was really difficult for me coming out of under-19s where I've been like time trial champ and stuff and I was like, yeah, I'm going to hit this well. And then as I developed as a rider, I got heavier and heavier just because that's how my body developed. And I think that's sort of a, a bit of a wormhole that I went down with the under-23 program as I was like, if I have to make it here, then this is the only way. And I think it took leaving that program and sort of being like, if I make it, I make it. If I don't, I don't. And taking all that pressure off. And I think that's sort of when I started to thrive a little bit with Lotto. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's interesting. That's, that's very good analysis because that look like reflecting that, that's very true. Because who 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 are your teammates in that on the twenty three squad? Uh, Michael Storer, Jai Henley, Lucas Hamilton, Callum Scottson, Rob Banner, Sam Jenner, and so Drew Laurie. Yeah, so all of which bar two are pros and very good climbers. Yeah, so and also the the place where you live and the racing that you're doing, like even if they did support a rider that was a classics type, you do one race a year that's in that's similar. Like you might start Roubaix and that's about it. So it's it's not like a, a criticism, but I think it's just something that you have to be really in tune with yourself in where what direction you want to go because as such a young person going to a team like that, it seems like there's only one avenue you can go down. And I think over the years, you can see that it's pigeonholed a lot of guys that could potentially have had incredible pro careers because I think I got in my own head a lot about it that that was going to be the be-all, end-all. And if I didn't make it in that team, then there's no way I'm going to make it. And that's just absolutely not true for so many people. Yeah. But then, yeah, it's, it's but at the same time, if you fit the brief, then it's out of control. Yeah. It's the best in the world. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, you it, was, it was the best in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And it was the best in the world at what it did, but not necessarily other things. Like when I went to Lotto under 23 and I joined and it was like, guys, just instead of guys having everything monitored, it was like, do what you need to do to be well, show up on race day and you better be going well. And everyone, <laughs> like you show up, flying, great atmosphere, Nothing like held over your head about performance data and what's per kilo and all this rubbish. It's like you come to a dirty Flemish race that's pouring rain and you race hard, get a result, and you go home and do whatever you want. That's And I think it, it sort of took me that to reset and sort of discover how I needed to live to perform well and then do the rest of it later. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I get that. It's, like it's, it's almost like that program... It was, you were kind of so babied into or so controlled in every single thing that you had. There was no real space for you to go your own way. There was no real space for you to just go, you know what, this is what I need to do. This is take, like yeah. responsibilities on you, Harry, yeah. Alex, like do the work, get it done. Yeah, especially even say you're a great under 23 in the world. If you're not one of the best on that team, it wasn't really the done thing to sort of go to another team it was like you have the spots on Mitchelton and if you're not the best on the team, you're sort of done for. Whereas any other team, I think it should be, if you're a good under 23, you're a good under 23 and you should be able to have the opportunity to perform at some race in the year instead of, it's like 
that team was sort of like an Ineos of under 23 <laughs> because they've got like, you've got guys that could win in their own rights or are great riders in their own rights riding for someone else to ensure that you're going to have a result. Whereas I think under 23 needs to step back and sort of realize that it's about development more than that. Yeah. Yeah. So if, like if you're an under 23 now, that program's no longer. So that's not even an option. And the programs that are an option are few and far between. And to even get the opportunity to get to like a lot of Siddhar like you did um, or an Axion, like it's hard, hard out there. It's hard yards, especially as an Australian. Like what 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 should you be looking for in an under-23 squad? Um, I think, honestly, you'd have to start as an under-19 first and get to Europe in whatever capacity that is. And that's what I did the first time to, to get on the under-23 team, actually. With, I was on the radar, but I found my own way to Belgium, did some races and won a few. And that's sort of what piqued, like, piques their interest a little bit. So I think uh, in the absence of that under-23 team, you're going to be going over in order to pique the absence of another European team. But, yeah, it is getting quite few and far between now that SEG's folded as well. But I think it is really the only way for an Australian. I think the NRS is on its way to becoming a little bit obsolete. Like, it's not the same as it was in 2015 when you had Paddy Bevan, Joe Cooper and all these big hitters that you knew were world-class. So, yeah, I think it's more about just getting yourself out there. Um, like you see the Benelong guys now, I think they've come with the same strategy as they have to come to Europe in order to make it and that's the only way. Yeah, those guys are making the ultimate sacrifice right now, like going to Europe yeah. knowing I'm not coming back. Like it's that's yeah. full full grind. Yeah, I do like it. I think it's you sort of have to have nothing to lose in order to make it at the moment. Um, I saw that when I was on Evo Pro as you're sort of just living a, a life that's entirely aimed at trying to make it pro because there's not really much else that you can do or even afford to do. So I think it made me sort of realise that if I wanted to make it, it was going to happen. And if I didn't make it, then that was sort of it really. And it was that pressure that was taken off that. Uh, sort of enabled me yeah when, when was the year at evo pro in 2018 oh yeah wait no 2019 i did 17 18 at mitchelden then they stopped and then 19 at evo pro and 20 at under 23 lotto what what was the what was the year at evo pro like it was full of ups and downs really um it's probably a whole episode in itself, but <laughs> it, in, in essence, it enabled me to realise what I was capable of as a rider, regardless of how good or bad the setup was. I have respect for what he's doing because he's, I think, made a lot of riders realise that they can make it again, that have sort of been thrown to the side. Like Archibald, he's back in the pro ranks. There's Gady, I think he's going really well again. Um, it sort of was a team of a lot of misfits and that's what made it really fun is we were sort of just tripping around Europe, all the riders having the vans um, and you're just racing for the love of it and trying to make it pro as a sort of like a side hustle almost. So yeah, <laughs> um, it, it was the most fun year I've ever had by far um, just because of that. Like everyone knew that everyone else that you're racing with had like an absolute battle in the last few years. So it made it, everyone that was there would have your back and like, it'd be good fun. And that was really sort of what helped me, I think. 
Is it? Is it? Has that paved the way in your approach? In a sense, like it feels like since we did that first podcast, like I I know knew who you were as a person, like knew your personality and you, um, like you're a funny, genuine Aussie guy. But like a lot of people, they do any kind of um, interview or media or whatnot, and they're like a bit uh, just like standoffish, quiet, don't want to say too much in the the world school in my first neo pro year. But you, you were like you were not bold and over the top, but just like you could have genuine conversation off the off the first year, and it seemed like you were just having a good time at the Tour de France. Well, yeah, that's what what it was really like. Actually, I think. I went in with the mindset that you have to enjoy it. And if you're not enjoying it, there's not really much point doing it. Like when in, what was it? In 2020, I said, if I don't make it, I don't make it. And I'll go and move on to do something else. Like it wasn't the be all end all that I was going to become a pro cyclist. I think I had such a bad time uh, for two years in Mitchelton, uh, just mentally, I guess that I was, almost ready to leave cycling like if it, if I couldn't make it I wasn't going to be that cut up about it and I could move on with my life and it took me that to be to realize it like you have to enjoy it and if you don't then even if you make it pro you're not going to have a long career anyway so there's not really much point so it took me somewhere that I could really fit in as a rider to then be able to enjoy it and just love it like if I couldn't that say I moved to another team, I wouldn't necessarily enjoy it as much as I do at Lotto because I know that I fit in here and that's what makes you enjoy it. That's what makes you go well. And like if I'm riding up a climb in the tour and every guy next to me is just absolutely hating his life, but I'm enjoying it, like enjoying the crowds, the last big climb of the tour or something and you're just really like frothing the moment, there's nothing you're getting paid to ride your bike. You live in a beautiful place. And then there's guys that are obsessing over everything about it. And I think that's what kills it a little bit as you see guys that are unhappy in their first year pro. And I think it really shouldn't be like that. It's easier said than done though. Like, yeah, like you said, it's like you had your years at Mitchelton. Like if you're, under the pump pressure um, results-wise, you're stressing about this new team, you're worried about your weight, you're worried about your watts, you're worried about your living scenario. It can be pretty hard to be happy at the same time. It is for sure. I think I lived at least three years of my life being unhappy with where I was at or at least two. And when I was on Evo Pro, I was sort of tunnel vision to make it to pro ranks. Um, <laughs> and it's a lot easier said than done being in like, now that I've made it pro and I'm settled in and I'm really comfortable with where I'm at. But say like if you interviewed me in the end of 2018, it would have been completely different. And I think that's all part of it is that not the mental struggle, but like having the fortitude to make it past those bad moments, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it really depends. Like if you're in a situation where you're actually having real mental health struggles or eating problems. Like it's not something that you can push through. Like you actually need help with that. And I don't think it's something that you can just be like, I need to enjoy myself and it will all go away. Yeah. I'm just going to get on the piss every weekend and yeah, party all the time. Uh, yeah. I think it's us like hardening up something that's said a lot in cycling, but there's only very few cases where you can actually do that. I think. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, but like, but when you when you can take get to the scenario that you're in now and you're enjoying, like you said, right in the last climate Tour de France, and you're enjoying the crowds, you you get results too. Things start yeah. to click. It does start to click, and I think it literally is all down to having the pressure off from not from the outside, but more just from me, because that's where all the pressure came from in the first place. Was there's you see guys that make it pro so easily from under 23s. Like they come in and win one race and they go pro or even as an under 19. And I remember thinking like, it's not happening for me, but it's not until you sort of just realize that everyone has their own different pathway that it's actually clicked for me. And it's so easy to look back on now and say like, I'm like, it was an easy journey or something, but it really wasn't. And I had a real hard time to get here. But now I get here is what's made me so happy with where I'm at. Yeah, yeah. Was was there any hurdles this year? So starting starting out as a neo pro, you move. We I assume you're in Belgium last year, and then you moved down south to France. Uh, there was actually a lot. So I couldn't get a visa in Belgium, uh, so I had to fly back to Australia to get a visa for France. That got denied on the first of January, and I had to fly. Training camp was starting on the 5th, bearing in mind. Of Jam. Um, yeah. So with a, with a brand new team. What First yeah. impressions. And I called up. I was like, look, I can't get a visa. So I reapplied. I hadn't signed my lease yet. I was sort of stringing them along like, yeah, I've got my visa. I just need to wait until I can pay the deposit. Um, I think my visa was approved on the 15th of January or something. So I was late for training camp already. Um, and then visa got approved. I signed the paperwork, sent my deposit for my apartment, flew directly to Spain for training camp. And then I flew from training camp directly to Nice. And that was the first time I'd ever been here. And I had all my possessions just on the street and just waiting for the person to let me in. It was the first time I'd been here. And then like I settled in, but everything was in lockdown. So it was really, uh, I don't know what the word, it was a really isolating feeling being in lockdown in a new city, not knowing the language, not having your bearings at all. You can't go outside after 5pm. Yeah, it was um, was really strange, but I think I got over that a lot with the support of my family because I I knew it was going to happen. Like a lot of the reason I moved here was so... I could have that isolation feeling, so it forced me to develop a life here. Yeah. So you reckon that's good for you? Because, like, this is beautiful. Like, it's so nice. And, um, like, there's Aussies down the road in Monaco and whatnot, (laughs) but, like, it's also awfully isolating. It's a long way from, you say, where everyone normally goes to Girona. And if you, like, you go there, you can see why. It's like there's bros everywhere. There's people to hang out with, people to chat to. Um, it's absolutely, <clears throat> sorry, Yeah. Absolutely why I moved here is because when I was in Girona, I never had the feeling that I had to work on my life. I got the feeling that everyone there was content doing like doing nothing or just being like who they were and hanging out with everyone that they already knew. And it wasn't until I moved here and I knew that it was going to happen, but it was scary in the moment when you're isolated and you know no one, but it forces you to sort of think like if 
if I just had any other regular job that wasn't cycling, I'm not going to be hanging out with my cycling mates all the time. So why don't I like actually try and make a life for myself? So that's sort of what I did here, I guess, is I, I wanted to make it so that I could have a life outside of cycling and live in Europe. And that's what I'm trying to do here is have friends that aren't cyclists, people I can hang out with that don't know what a bike is and like think it's cool that I'm doing the tour or whatever it is. <laughs> and I, I think that's a, a massive reason is because so many guys, like if you have a bad day in, in a race and you have to come back to Girona and bump into someone that you raced that day, that you like pushed off the road or something like you're not going to have a good time and yeah or even like that's the guy that you go to to like get rid of the the feelings that you built up that that week tour that you'd been at that you yeah. had a terrible time yeah um there's absolutely no switching off but for sure it was really out of my comfort zone like i thought it was going to be a great idea and i stand by it but i didn't realize how hard it actually would be to come out of my comfort zone like that. Like given I have like a few guys in Monaco up the road, but in Nice, I'm really quite isolated from cycling. And it did take a lot of effort because I don't think a lot of people, especially in Australia, realize that you don't actually consciously build your life. Like it sort of just happens as you grow up. And then when you move somewhere as isolating as this, you have to like consciously be like, I'm going to go out for a walk today to try and meet someone. <laughs> and that bizarre, bizarre thing. I was skating along the promenade and I just hoped that I bumped into someone and like just made a friend. And that's actually what happened is I met some people along the promenade and now I have some friends here. And so you're speaking French, like you're doing the full. I'm, I, have, I honestly haven't been very good with it lately. But my, now my girlfriend came, I think, a month ago now, um, and we're going to try and learn in the winter, like when I'm fully relaxed and I don't have anything to do really. Um, yeah. And it really helps having someone else to learn it with. Uh, so that'll be good. Um, there is a French school in Villefranche where you come away speaking French after. I think Rob's going there actually, but it's quite expensive. So we're going to try it the old-fashioned way for a little bit and see how it goes. Yeah, because like France is the deep end. I, I feel like from the countries that I've been to, if you if you rank them on Australia esque or the Australian traits that they have, like it, France is must be at the bottom, the hardest of them all, the most isolating of them all. And it's it's all well and good to say like, oh, I'm gonna go there and I'm gonna get myself in the community and I'm gonna learn French and I'll be having baguettes for for lunch and croissants for breakfast in no time, but. That's a massive thing to do. Like, that's a really hard step to make. It is for sure. Um, I think what's helped it along the way is that I had that I had a few people I knew already, just the right amount. But also, uh, it's probably the least French place in France here. <laughs> uh, like, it it almost is a little Australia in terms of the landscape and um, the the water. But yeah, for a lot of people do speak English here, which is sort of like a nice um, safety net in some ways, but it's definitely French in the way that they don't want to speak English to you. So it forced me to know enough to sort of get by and without really properly learning it, it's hard to move past that initial step. But in day-to-day -day life, I am making an effort to try and speak French to French people and understand. Like yesterday, I went to buy a car and I was trying to haggle the price down but the, i didn't speak any english and he was like 
telling me all the modifications it had done to it. And I was like, I'm not going to be able to get this guy down on the price. <laughs> hang on, hang uh, on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Were you, were you, were you at like a Porsche shop yesterday? Um, I was looking online just for like a day-to-day car and I stumbled across, it's called Sunny Speed Shop. And they had like all these outrageous cars in there. They had a, a Koenigsegg Regera in that 1.7 million euro. They had Ferrari F40, all these outrageous cars. And then in the back corners, this little Renault Clio Sport, which <laughs> I used to have in Australia. And I knew how much fun they were. So I went in to have a look at it, test drove it, and I bought it. Um, so they're doing all the rego documents at the moment. But um, yeah, like this shop was just incredible. They had shop dog there took my girlfriend and they gave her like a, a trip around the shop but yeah i definitely wasn't buying a port <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say that that, that that didn't look like um you just go buy your everyday car from that that store no absolutely not <laughs> so you mate your mates in like your mates in nice are they they're speaking english are they some of them are french some of them are english some are irish but yeah for the most part um they're they're english speaking they all speak english at least yeah and you're just hanging out as mates nothing no connections to the sport no connections to yeah no they one of them works as a bartender and the other one works at like a um a consultancy office in nice here so it's like literally nothing like i come back from the tour and just come and have a beer with them at their work it's it's really like normal life and that's yeah what I missed. Wow. Wow. Well, but it, but it makes sense. It makes, it starts to, I don't know, for me, it starts to make the picture as to why this year has been so successful. It's like, yeah, I think a lot of guys, I think are focused on everything before, but I think what has to come first is that you're happy in normal life. And I think a lot of the new um, physiological um, like studies have figured out that like life stresses aren't adding to your training. It's really taking away from training stimulus. So I think the first step is to make sure that you don't have many life stresses and that you enjoy your normal life and then you build from there. Yeah. 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 We've done a couple of episodes like around that one, um, Jason Backer, one of the sports managers, he talks about like he's when he signs a, signs a rider or they they have the Neopro contract. He encourages them to spend most of their contract, just like set it all up, buy everything, yep. like buy, buy things like you're going to be there for the next 30 years. Um, I did. And- li- I think it was when it came out, I listened to it because I was in the process of getting to grips with it. I was not in a big contract. I was moving to somewhere else and I was like, I don't have any money to save, but I also don't have enough money to spend it on stuff. But I listened to that and I was like, it does actually make a lot of sense. So like, it's hard to be like, I'm going to spend all my bank balance or like a lot of it on getting a car. But like, it makes sense because you're going to, I'm not coming back for winter. I'm going to be here for at least another year until I come home. So it makes sense to be set up as like as you would in any other job yeah and and but like also just not have that environment feeling like it should be anything else besides your home you're not on a holiday you're not in an airbnb you're not i've got my nice house back in um back in brizzy that i'm gonna go back to you are like you're at home now yeah um i think a lot of the problems that i had in terms of like whether i thought i would make it as a pro were 
at when I sort of realized it was at the start of the year when I wouldn't really want to buy much stuff here because I was like, what if I don't make it, then I have to do something with it all. Yeah. But it, in, at least until probably Dauphiné to realize that I actually do fit in in the pro peloton and I will make it, that I was like, maybe I should really properly invest in being set up well here. Um, I, for sure, it's something that's normal to experience. Like when you move to another country, and like, is it going to work out? But at the end of the day, like the money that you make as a Neo Pro, as Jason said, is literally nothing compared to what you'll make if you have a successful career. So you might as well make yourself happy and set yourself up well. Yeah. Yeah. So you're not like, you're not buying sports cars, but like the place, the, your environment around you is nice. And then combining that with your investment of time in, um, in making friends, getting settled in the community and whatnot, like I think it's a, a big tick. And then from a, excuse me, from a scientific point of view, we did a podcast with David Spindler and his PhD is on happy Watts. He's like, it's a thing. Like you, if you're happy with your surroundings, your cognitive load is less and you'll perform better. Things, things are good. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people use it as, I don't know, a, a bit of a joke, but I think a lot of the new science coming out is that it's absolutely a thing and that happy people perform a lot better. And I, I almost entirely attribute my success to either being happy with where I'm at or actively working towards it and feeling content with that and having self-belief. Yeah. yeah. That, was, that was a good app, Harry. Congrats on a massive year. It's good to wrap it up. Um, and it was it was a, ni- a nice finishing touch with a highly successful Roubaix to um to put a tie on the year uh enjoy your off season thanks for having me on i really appreciate it we'll chat soon sounds great